0: challenge, you're halfway through. Congratulations, you made it halfway through. Uh, Keep up the good work. For those of you who maybe started and and dropped away, found it a little too much reading for you, or maybe for those of you who who didn't start and kind of wish that you would have, let me give you one more invitation. Okay, we're halfway through, and and now for the second half, our gospel readings are going to carry us to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to the tomb. So my invitation to you, is to start now with us. Okay, you can forget the first three. We use your papal absolution for not doing those first three. Just join us now. Pick it up right where we are. Use the bulletin cover, you know, the reading in the bulletin, and join us. Oh, a great way to prepare for Lent, to prepare for Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, for Easter by reading that story of Jesus' journey. So you're you're more than welcome to simply start with us this week. And as as you read the passages throughout this coming week, you're going to notice. Tensions begin to rise significantly between Jesus and the Pharisees. Remember, we talked about the Pharisees a couple weeks ago. The Pharisees, the religious leaders who lead with law. Remember, law, the law of Moses was their number one, number one priority. That's what they cared about the most. And so they led with law. And, and here comes Jesus who leads with love. Okay? He doesn't forget about the law, but his first step is love instead of law. And no wonder they go toe-to-toe then. And now Jesus, who who up till now has been ministering mostly up in the northern region of Galilee, is making his way to Jerusalem, and he arrives in Jerusalem, which is the headquarters of the Pharisees. It's the political and spiritual headquarters, which means there will be many more confrontations. Enough that these, these spiritual pirates, as we called them two weeks ago, remember? They begin to plan how they can kill Jesus, how they can make him disappear without getting too much blood on their hands. Well, this morning, we're going to learn from one of those early confrontations. So take out your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14 is found on page 1012 in the Bibles in front of you. Luke 14. Now these... These confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees most often weren't weren't explosive confrontations, you know, angry confrontations, although there were some of those. You'll read this week about about the time when Jesus has one of those angry confrontations with the Pharisees and he calls them whitewashed tombs and and snakes and vipers and hypocrites. But most often these confrontations are are done under the guise of respect. Yeah, the Pharisees encountered Jesus, and they, they try and trick him. They try and trap him. And, and that's what we experience here in Luke chapter 14. We're going to read the first 11 verses. We're going to start, though, with, with verses 1 through 6 and pause there. So look at the first six verses of, of Luke 14. It says, One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. Okay, pause there for a moment. Here's the setting. Here's the scene. Jesus is invited to to this home of a prominent Pharisee for lunch on the Sabbath day. Now know that this invitation was not given out of love. It was not given out of respect. The invitation was given so that this Pharisee and all of his cronies could, could trap him. Trap him to say something that he wasn't supposed to say. And so Luke begins by giving us this story of this sick man who's placed right in front of Jesus at this dinner party. How he got there, we, we aren't told. But I wouldn't be surprised for a moment if this, these Pharisees didn't, didn't set him up, didn't invite him, didn't come and, and place him right in front of Jesus on the Sabbath knowing that Jesus would would probably heal him. And to them, that was a sin. For For them... That much was too much work. You couldn't work on the Sabbath, right? So you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. So they place this man in front of Jesus, and he does exactly what what they expect. Jesus reaches out, and he heals this man. But he defends himself with words from the law of Moses, which is their law, remember? That's what they hold to, that's what they lead with. And so he silences them. They, They have nothing to say. Now, I think Luke includes includes these six verses here. Not only as a lesson about the importance of leading with love, as Jesus does, but I think he gives us these verses for, to give us the context within which this next story and really the rest of this chapter is told. Know that Jesus is not surrounded by friends. He's surrounded by enemies who are pretending to be friends. He's surrounded by men who have their own glory in mind, not God's glory. He's surrounded by intellectual scholars who think they know it all but really have it all wrong. And he has to find some way to get his message through to them. Arguing and debating with them isn't getting anywhere. Doing miracles for them obviously isn't changing their hearts. He just did one and, and it didn't move them. Teaching them isn't getting through. They've heard what he has to say. So, He tells them a story. Listen to his story, verses 7 through 11. When he, that is Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so... The host who invited both of you will come to you and say, Give this man a se- your seat. humiliated you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, when you sit down to lunch today, in a few moments, in just a little while, my guess is where you sit around the table won't be a very big deal. If you're like my if your family's like mine, we all have our places where we sit, right? You sit in the same place every time. Not because there's something so important. Yeah, maybe today you want to mix that up a little bit, see what you want to do, see how that goes. But, But not because one place is more important, it's just the way where you always sit, right? In our culture, there's really only... One place left where, where you sit makes a difference, and that's usually at wedding receptions, right? There's assigned places at wedding receptions. You know how it is. Some of you have planned weddings, and so you've had to figure out this whole seating thing. There's a lot of pressure to get it right, right? You know, at, at the center of the, of the head table are the bride and groom, because they're the guests of honor. They're the hosts. They're the ones this is celebration is all about, so they get the center where everybody sees them. And to the side of the of the bride is the the best is, is the maid of honor, and to, to the side of the groom is the best man. And and down that table are all the bridesmaids and groomsmen, all the people who are in the ceremony are up front there, right, the place of honor. Usually, there's a a table up front somewhere where the the parents get to sit and the grandparents and the close relatives. Another place of honor, and then the seating gets arranged kind of on on level of importance, right? You have close family and close friends who are sitting closer to the front and And usually there's a table way in the back corner where the pastor gets to sit. (laughs) Far away from the dance floor, which is a good place for me to be, right? There's order, there's reason, there's honor in how you sit. Worked the same way at wedding banquets in Jesus' day. And in important dinners like this one that he was at, at this Pharisee's house. right? Only the interesting thing is that there weren't little... Place cards that told you where to sit. You had to figure it out. You had to figure out how close to the head you get to sit. Usually, uh, most likely at this dinner table, it was a it was a low table uh, that Jesus was sitting or that, that they all sit, a low table and they recline. They lay on their left arm and they eat with their right arm. And the table was probably probably a U shaped table. The place of honor where the host should be sitting is at the very head of that U. Right? He would sit there. And everybody would want to sit as close as you could to that person, to, to the head of the table. And, and you go all the way down to the very end of the table. That's where the person with the least amount of honor would sit. And so as you come to the party, you need to figure out where you're going to sit. What is your proper place? And, and here's the danger of the game that they would play. Because if you place yourself too too high up in, in the, the order of honor, you put yourself in danger. Because here's what would happen. Let's say I think I'm really important at this dinner, that this host really likes me, so I sit myself right next to the head of the table. Right, That's where the Pharisees would want to be. They would want the honor, they would want the glory. Let's say I put myself right next to the host. And I think, yeah, that's the right place for me to be at this dinner. I'm, I'm pretty big stuff here. But then somebody else comes. You know, The places you know, fill in all around the table. Then someone else comes who has a greater honor than me. The host always has the right to rearrange you to say someone else needs your seat. So someone else comes with greater honor than me. The host is going to come to me and say, this spot doesn't belong to you anymore. You need to get up and move because somebody with greater honor has come. Well, everybody else down the row isn't going to move over for me. They aren't going to lose their, their places of honor. They're going to hold firm. And so I will have to stand up, and the only place left for me will be way at the end of the table, the place of least amount of honor. And these dinners are often very public affairs. The, a big dinner like this, the, the whole city would know what's going on, and, and they could see in through the windows and see what's going on, and they would see me then sitting at the very end of the table, the place of the least amount of and I'm humiliated for the whole meal. It's interesting. As you read this week, if you you keep up with your reading, you'll read Luke 22, which is the story of the Last Supper. And in Luke's account, he talks about how at the Last Supper, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. I wonder if it could be because they're trying to figure out their seating arrangement. They're trying to figure out who's supposed to sit where, and maybe, maybe one of them shook things up a little bit. Maybe Nathaniel tried to take John's place. And and got sent back down to sit by Bartholomew way at the end, right? Interesting, maybe it's the same thing. Well, on this Sabbath day, at this lunch, these men had just completed this whole social dance and around this table. They had just claimed their positions of, of honor, had declared some to be social winners at the head of the table, some to be social losers at the foot. And Jesus takes this opportunity with this common event to teach them a kingdom lesson. He tells, that, tells them that instead of striving to try and get to that head spot, they should be eager to take the spots far, far away. Why? Verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's Jesus' kingdom lesson. And I doubt that his listeners that day Learned that lesson very well. They weren't there to learn from Jesus. Remember, they were there to trick him. But if we are here this morning to learn from Jesus, to listen to him, then there is a powerful life lesson for us that goes way beyond where we sit at the next wedding reception that we go to this year. Jesus' lesson for these Pharisees and Jesus' lesson for us through this story is a lesson about honor and humility With this story, Jesus tells him that honor cannot be claimed. It can only be given. And in God's kingdom, great honor comes through great humility. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the person who humbles himself will be exalted. Interesting. In God's kingdom system, these two opposites, honor and humility, are, are intertwined. They interrelate with each other. They merge into one. Humility becomes the path to great honor. Inconceivable to these Pharisees. That's exactly the opposite of how they've lived their lives. And it's completely the opposite of how our world teaches us to live our lives today. It's why this concept is still so foreign to us 2,000 years later. We still don't get it. We still strive for honor instead of humility. And Jesus knew that we wouldn't get it. That's why he not only tells stories about it, he not only teaches about it, but he models for us what that kind of humility needs to look like in our lives. So as you continue in the next three weeks to read through the accounts of Jesus' life, you won't find him fighting for the head of the table. You won't find him grabbing all the honor, all the glory, all of the prestige that he can. No, he never grabbed honor for himself. You will see him choosing a path of humble service. You will see him living as a servant to all, even the least of these. You will see him at the foot of the table. And because he embraces humility, God bestows on him the greatest Honor. You know, I, I can't help, I couldn't this week help but think about Philippians chapter 2. If you, if you took, put your Bibles away, take them out again if you can. Turn to Philippians 2, one of my favorite passages. Philippians 2, this, this passage, more than any other, is a clear call to live out the story that Jesus tells here in Luke 14. It's a demonstration of how God's kingdom humility leads to great honor. We're going to start at verse 6. In verse 5, Paul invites our attitude to be the same as that of Jesus Christ. Okay? And then he tells us how Jesus lived his life, how Jesus lived in humility step by step. Listen to this. It says, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now think about this for a moment. Where did Jesus start here? Being very nature God. He started with all the glory of being God. All the glory in heaven. And he began this humble path. That began with becoming human. What a step down for God to take on human flesh. To take on Take on all of our hurts, all of our emotions, all of our limitations. Not only did he take on human flesh, but he didn't make himself some great king, some great authority. He made himself a humble carpenter's son. And not only did he take on human flesh, but he humbled himself enough that he would, he would submit to a Roman authority, an illegitimate authority. He would submit to them even though, even though they condemned him wrongly to death. And not just any death, but death on a cross. A horrible, humiliating death. There's humility. It's taking the position farthest from the place of honor. And that is where we must go if we are going to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus will not lead us to the head of the table. Jesus will not lead us to places of honor where we are glorified and praised and pampered. Jesus will lead us to places of humility, places of self-sacrifice, places of service, places where, where we will die to this life. And Jesus leads us there Jesus invites us to follow in his footsteps there because he knows that that is the path to greatest glory. That is the path to true honor. I mean, Jesus' story doesn't end there. It doesn't end with a cross and a tomb. Read on, verses 9 through 11. It says, therefore, because Jesus took this path of humility, therefore, Because Jesus was willing to humble himself, God gave him greater glory. Because Jesus was even willing to, to die, Jesus, God gave him greater honor. He placed him at his right hand where every knee is going to bow, where every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. Right? The lesson here is not complex. It's the humble who will be honored. It's by choosing the foot of the table that we will find ourselves at the head of God's table. The lesson isn't complex, but it sure is hard to live out, isn't it? It's hard for us to live out because everything in the world around us, everything in society and culture around us encourages us, trains us, tempts us. To go and grab honor. Get all the respect and glory that you can for yourself. That's what life is about, right? It's hard for us to live out. Because often we, we don't, don't understand exactly what honor and humility truly are. Honor is probably the easier one for us to understand. We can pretty easily recognize the Pharisees of our age. Those who are grabbing at honor. It's those who exalt themselves. That's what honor is. When we do it, we're exalting ourselves. And and the, the arrogant Pharisees around us are the ones who are proud. They're the ones who dominate every conversation, right? Maybe even they dominate a whole relationship with their thoughts, their insights, their ideas, their stories. They're the ones who must always be the center of attention. They're the ones who will never be corrected, will never be confronted. If there's a spotlight to be had, they're going to grab it. They're going to exalt themselves. And their desire for honor often leads them not only to, to build themselves up, but in the process to tear other people down. Right? They try, try and add to their own honor by stealing honor from someone else. They treat others as inferior to make themselves more honorable. You can see it when they're, when they're rude to the server at the restaurant, when they're demeaning to the checker at the grocery store. In their arrogance and in their pride, they exalt themselves and everybody else is just a tool to serve them. My guess is you know someone like that. My guess is you and I are like that. Different areas of our lives. We like the honor. We like the glory. The temptation in this life for every single one of us is to reach for that honor. But we will only get it truly when we set aside our arrogance, when we set aside our pride, and we, we no longer focus on ourselves, but instead we begin to live true humility. Right? We need to understand right up front what humility is not, because so often we get it wrong. Sometimes we have this false sense of humility that comes from tearing ourselves down. Right? We demean ourselves And that isn't a healthy humility. Humility is not having a poor self-image. Self-degradation is not humility. It's sin. Because every one of us is a beautiful child of God, gifted by Him and loved by Him. And for us to minimize our own value, for us to minimize our own giftedness, is to minimize God. It's to minimize His work. So we don't tear ourselves down. That's not humility. And yet so often don't we fall into that trap in simple ways. And right? So when somebody gives us a compliment, how many of us don't immediate, immediately reply, oh, it was nothing. It was nothing. Why not just say thank you? Thank you for recognizing God's gifts. It's, thank you. When someone thanks us for the way we use our gifts in leadership or service, we brush it off as unimportant instead of saying, you're welcome, In honoring God's plan for your life? Or how many of us don't see an opportunity to use the gifts God has given us in the kingdom somewhere? And and we think, you know what? Someone else is better equipped than me. So I'm going to let them do it. And our gifts never get used. We end up humbly doing nothing. That's not humility. That's spiritual laziness. And that's sin. I, I, I really like... Frederick Beatner, one of my favorite authors, his definition of humility here, just a couple short paragraphs. He liked to play the game bridge. i never played bridge, but that's where this illustration comes from, for those of you who know bridge. He says this, he says, Humility is often confused with the gentlemanly self-depreciation of saying you're not much of a bridge player, when you know perfectly well that you are. Conscious or otherwise, that kind of humility is a form of gamesmanship. If you really aren't much of a bridge player, you're apt to be rather proud of yourself for admitting it so humbly. This kind of humility is a form of comedy. True humility doesn't consist of thinking ill of yourself, but of not thinking of yourself much differently from the way you'd think of anybody else. It's the capacity for being no more or less pleased when you play your hand well, as when your opponent plays his hand well. Humility is not putting yourself down. In God's great plan, humility is raising others up, exalting others and celebrating them and celebrating God in them. True humility comes, Paul says in Philippians 2, when we compare ourselves with Christ. Right? When we compare ourselves with Jesus, two things are going to happen. First of all, we're going to see who Jesus is, and we're going to realize our own sinfulness and our own brokenness. And that's going to bring true humility, because we realize how far we've fallen. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short of the glory of God. All of us have earned condemnation. All of us have had every bit of honor stripped away from us when we compare it to Jesus Christ. So seeing ourselves through the filter of Jesus, as Paul invites us to do, will help us keep an honest assessment of ourselves, of our own goodness and the honor we deserve. But seeing ourselves through the filter of Jesus will also force us to see who God has made us to be, who he has redeemed us to be. We'll recognize the gifts that He has given us and the value that is ours in Him and the strength He has now invested in us. There isn't one of us here who isn't gifted by God. There isn't one of us who isn't loved by Him, who doesn't have a God-given strength that God intends you to use for His kingdom and for His glory and for eternal purposes. And true humility is willing then, not only to recognize the gifts that God has given me, but to give them back to God for His purposes and for His glory, for His kingdom plan, not for my own. That's the kind of humility that God is looking for. He wants his people to celebrate their gifts and abilities and humbly use them to serve God and to serve others. That, my friends, is the path to honor. It's people who humbly serve. It's to them that God will say, what are you doing there at the end of the table? What are you doing way at the foot? Come on up. I've got a place at the head of the table for you. I've got a place of honor because you served. You know, one of the greatest modern-day models of that kind of greatness, of imitating the attitude, the humble attitude of Jesus, is a man named, named Henry Nowen. Some of you may know him. Henry Nowen was one of the most influential spiritual writers and theologians of our time. He passed away back in 1996. Henry Nouwen wrote literally hundreds of articles. He wrote over 40 books, translated into every language, sold over 7 million copies worldwide. He taught theology at at great academic institutions like Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard. He was the top of the theological game, okay? But in 1986, he left all of that behind. He resigned his position. And he spent the last 10 years of his life living in a community of people with developmental disabilities, serving them, loving them, and being served and loved by them. He left all of that behind. And humility served them. And it was hard. Listen to this quote that he wrote. He wrote this, Everything in me wants to move upward. Downward mobility with Jesus goes radically against my inclinations, against the advice of this world surrounding me, and against the culture of which I am a part. And he did it anyways. I want you to know that as you try and live out this path of humility, everything is going to work against you. All of your inclinations, all of the advice of the world surrounding you, the culture of what you are part, of, is going to say, "Move on up." Well, Jesus says, "Move on down to serve." It's how God has designed you to live. Let me just tell you one more quick story as I end here. It's the story of a man named Brian Wilkerson who worked for Taylor University. And he tells about his experience with a young man who was coming from Africa to attend Taylor University. And this was years ago, before, before there was a lot of exchange students. And he was one of the rare people coming from Africa to attend college at Taylor. And so, and so when he arrived, before all the other students, he showed this, this young man around campus, showed him all the, all the classroom buildings, showed him all the dormitories, and then, then told him, you, you can pick whichever dorm you want to live in. In fact, you can pick whichever room. You want to stay in. You just tell us and it's yours. And this, he said, this young man replied with this sentence. He said, if there's a room that no one else wants, give me that one. If there's a room no one else wants, give that one to me. In humility, join me for this prayer, would you? Father, if there's a room no one else wants, give that room to me. If there's a task no one else wants to do, give that task to me. If there's a classmate no one else wants to eat lunch with, help me to eat lunch with her. If there's a piece of toast that's burnt, give that piece to me. If there's a ministry that no one else will do, give that ministry to me. If there's someone that no one will love, ask me to love him. If there's a hardship that someone has to endure, give that hardship to me. And if there's a sacrifice that someone has to make, let me be the one to make that sacrifice. And may it all be for your glory. May it all be for your kingdom. And in humility, may we someday hear you say, Friend, move up to a better place. A place of honor in your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? God's kingdom is built through humility. And so we're going to sing the song, Build Your Kingdom Here. And that's our commitment, not just to celebrate God's coming kingdom, but to say, build it through me. I will be that humble servant who will usher your kingdom.